that she shall re-enter her prison in prison within the said castle of blackness upon the first day of November next under the penalty of one thousand mercs, Scots money, in case of failure. End quote. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. She was, however, afterward relieved from the necessity of returning to the prison of blackness at the time specified in this act. Having presented another petition to the council, quote, desiring that the former liberty allowed her forth of the castle of blackness, where she was prisoner for several alleged irregularities, might be prorogate for some further time to the effect she may go about her own and her mother's affairs and may have access to her being prisoner in the said castle both day and night, the council at their meeting on the 6th of December, 1683, prorogate and continue the petitioner's foresaid liberty forth of the said castle in regard she has found sufficient caution, acted in the books of privy council, that she shall come here personally before the council upon the first Thursday of February next, or that the said day she shall re-enter her person in prison within the said castle of blackness, and that, un- and that under the penalty of one thousand mercs Scots money in case of failure in either of the premises. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. In February, she presented a third petition to the council. Quote, showing that being incarcerated with her mother in the castle of blackness near ten months ago for being present at a conventicle as alleged in her mother in her said mother's house and upon application being made to the council liberated but withal ordained to re-enter this instant month of February her imprisonment had been attended with great indisposition of health and therefore humbly craving that the council would be pleased to consider her circumstances a very young gentlewoman having no means of livelihood but by a dependence on her mother, and to commiserate her case and ordain her to be set at liberty, at least upon caution to compare when called. End quote. Quote, the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council having, end quote, at their meeting of the 14th of February, 1684, quote, considered the foresaid petition, gave warrant to the clerks of council to deliver to the supplicant's cautioner the bonds given for her in regard conformed thereto he has exhibited her. End quote. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. The young lady's trouble, it would appear, on account of the alleged conventicle in her mother's house was now brought to a close. But her mother's sufferings on the same account were of much longer duration. Lady Caldwell, at the time when her daughter was liberated, was allowed, quote, as a mighty favor, to ascend to some step by some steps to take the air upon the head of the castle wall, but at that time not to go without the foot of the turnpike where she lodged, though indeed afterwards she obtained the liberty within the precincts of the castle. End quote. Footnote. Sir William Cunningham's manuscript accounts of the sufferings of Lady Caldwell. End footnote. But after this, she continued a prisoner there for about two years and nine months. The sufferings she endured during that period must have been great. We have no chronicler who has left a record of the annoyances and privations which the covenanting prisoners endured in the Castle of Blackness, as James Fraser of Bree has left a record of those endured by the prisoners of the Bass. 
As in the Bass, they would probably suffer from the caprice, rudeness, and profaneness of the garrison. From several of the petitions presented by the prisoners, which we have seen, it appears that in most cases the health of the prisoners gave way, and that diseases of a very serious nature were often contracted. Hard as it was for this lady to be deprived of all her substance and to be compelled scantily to support herself and her children by the labor of her own hands, her condition was now much more painful and distressing. Now she was removed from her children, who had proved a blessing and comfort to her, and shut up in a prison, was doomed to spend her time under harsh restraint and in solitude, her children, relatives, and friends being only occasionally allowed to visit her. In this desolate situation, the days and the months would pass heavily away, and she could not but often experience a sinking in her spirit. It was, however, well that by the discipline of adversity the principles of her faith had been well established and that she was prepared by her Christian fortitude and her holy trust in God to suffer still greater hardships than those to which she had been even as yet inured. Among the hardships which she endured during this period of her imprisonment, the following case of heartless cruelty reflects the utmost disgrace upon the government of that day. Her cousin German, Mr. Walter Sandilands of Hilderston, footnote, Mr. Walter Sandilands was the son of William Sandilands, brother to the fourth Lord Torfuchen, by his wife, who was a sister of Lady Caldwell's father. Both his parents were, quote, distinguished for their attachment to the principles of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and their, man their mansion house at Hilderston was often the hospitable resort of the persecuted covenanters, end quote. Mr. Walter himself, quote, retained the same attachment to the Protestant and Presbyterian principles which had characterized the family from the days of their illustrious ancestor, Sir James Sandilands, the friend and patron of John Knox, end quote. Quadril's History, Volume 3, page 441. End footnote. Her cousin German, Mr. Walter Sandilands of Hilderston, then living at the west port of Linlithgow, the heiress of which property he had married, having fallen sick of a violent fever which issued in his death, she, on hearing of his dangerous illness, sent two of her daughters, probably on their paying her one of those occasional visits which for a time cheered up her heart, to give him her kind compliments and inquire how he was. Within a few hours after their arrival at his house, her second daughter, Miss Anne, was attacked by the fever of which she afterward died at Linlithgow. Being informed of the severe and dangerous sickness of her daughter, Lady Caldwell naturally felt a strong desire to see her, and being distant from her only two miles, she hoped that so small a favor would upon application not be refused. But her hopes were disappointed. Though she earnestly desired to be permitted to go and see her dearly beloved dying daughter for only one hour, should no longer time be granted, and though she willingly offered to take a guard with her, yea, to take the whole garrison along with her as a guard, should it be required, and to maintain them at her own expense while she made this visit, yet the most earnest solicitations were ineffectual. These cruel men, trifling with the yearnings of a mother's love, refused to grant so reasonable a request, and thus she was deprived of the opportunity of seeing her daughter before her death. To such as know a mother's heart, it is needless to say how pungent must have been her anguish to think that her daughter should sicken, die, and be buried, 
while she, though at the distance of not more than two miles, was only permitted to hear of all this as each mournful event successively happened. Footnote. Sir William Cunningham, in his manuscript account of Lady Caldwell's sufferings, which relates chiefly to those connected with her imprisonment in Blackness Castle, concludes thus, quote, As the records of the secret council, secret council will vouch a great part of this narration, so Glasgow affords yet many living witnesses of the truth of what is before advanced in the neighborhood of Blackness, there being several honorable persons yet alive who can bear testimony to it, as well as yet living fellow prisoners. As also the truth of what is said is referred to the declaration of the present Laird of Bedlormy, then Deputy Governor of the Castle of Blackness, upon his word of honor. Yea, there is a defiance given to the challenge to search if he can find among any of the records of the jurisdictions of Scotland if the Lady Caldwell had been impeached or convict any other way but in the manner already said. End footnote. After being imprisoned for more than three years, Lady Caldwell was at length released in answer to a petition which she presented to the Privy Council. From the character of the petitions presented to the Privy Council by the imprisoned Covenanters, we can almost always learn whether a long imprisonment had the effect of weakening their resolution or whether their steadfastness of purpose remained unshaken. If the former had been the effect, some concession is made as an engagement to live regularly or to obey the laws. If the latter, an entire silence is preserved on that subject so that the omission is, re is pregnant with meaning, is a certain evidence that the spirit was unsubdued by persecution. This last was the form of Lady Caldwell's petition. It is simply a prayer to be released from her confinement on the ground of her ill health and her impoverished circumstances, and contains not a single statement implying the least wavering or unsteadfastness as to her principles. This is no small commendation. Imprisonment, so far from being a light punishment, may be rendered the most bitter and crushing to the spirit that can be inflicted, and when protracted during months and years, it has not unfrequently subdued the fortitude of men who, in the excitement and activity of actual conflict, have braved death in resisting arbitrary and unhallowed impositions upon conscience. Acting like a slow and lingering torture, it has exhausted the patience of the spirit and laid prostrate its moral heroism. But Lady Caldwell's moral firmness, after an imprisonment of more than three years, remained unmoved. She had no attachment to prison walls, to dank and confined air, for she had experienced their injurious effects in exhausting the strength of her frame. She had no satisfaction in being, being kept from the society of her children, for she had found in this her greatest earthly comfort since their father's death. She had no liking for the numerous privations and hardships of her captivity. All these were associated in her mind with painful feelings and recollections, with sighs, tears, and regrets, the natural companions of a prison's inmates. But to escape from them, she would not compromise her integrity or do aught inconsistent with the principles for which she was honored to suffer so much. The petition she presented to the Privy Council is as follows, quote, Unto the Right Honorable, the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, the petition of Barbara Cunningham, relict of William Muir, 
sometime of Caldwell, prisoner in the castle of Blackness, humbly showeth that your lordship's petitioner hath been detained prisoner above these three years for alleged alleged being present at a health conventicle by reason whereof she has become very valetudinary and is also reduced to great difficulties being in respect of her deceased husband's forfeiture wholly deprived of any subsistence forth of that estate either to her or her children these nineteen years begone may it therefore please your lordships to commiserate my valetudinary and destitute condition and to ordain me to be set at liberty and your petitioner shall ever pray, etc. End quote. Footnote. Warrants of Privy Council. Sir William Cunningham in his account of Lady Caldwell's sufferings and Wadrow in his history incorrectly say she was dismissed without any petition having been presented to the council for her liberation. End footnote. As this petition, though worded respectfully, makes not the least acknowledgment of a fault nor contains any engagement to live regularly in future, it was by no means calculated to conciliate the favor of the lords of His Majesty's Privy Council. But as James VII was then beginning with the view of promoting his scheme of introducing popery and slavery into Britain to profess great zeal for the toleration of Protestant dissenters, the omissions of the petition of the stern and inflexible covenantress were overlooked, and the following order was issued for her liberation. Quote, Edinburgh, 21st June, 1686. The Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, having considered the bills presented by Barbara Cunningham, Lady Caldwell, now a prisoner in the Castle of Blackness, desiring liberty upon the considerations therein mentioned, do hereby recommend to the Earl of Linlithgow, Lord Justice General, and Chief Governor of the said Castle of Blackness to grant, order, and warrant to set the said Lady Caldwell forthwith at liberty for which this shall be a sufficient warrant to the said Earl and all others concerned. End quote. Footnote. Warrants of Privy Council. End footnote. According to this order, Lady Caldwell, without coming under any engagement whatever or even receiving a caution not to offend against the laws in future, was liberated and after a long separation restored to the bosom of her family. During the remainder of the persecution, which was now drawing to a close, she was permitted to live with her children in peace, and they lived together in the same humble condition as before, earning their subsistence by honest industry. It is gratifying to know that after the revolution, justice, in so far as possible, was done to this worthy lady and her family. The forfeiture of her husband was rescinded by the Scottish Parliament, not only by the General Act of July 4, 1690, rescinding the forfeitures and fines of the Covenanters from the 1st of January 1665 to the 5th of November 1688, in which his name occurs among some hundreds of other names, but by another Act, 19th July 1690, which expressly rescinded it on the ground of its having been pronounced by the judiciary court in his absence, which, it is declared, was illegal and therefore from the beginning null and void. Footnote. The Act is entitled Act Rescinding Forfeitures in Absence Before the Justice Court preceding the year 1669 and Restoring Caldwell and Kersland and Mr. William Veach, Acts of the Parliament of Scotland. End footnote. 
to illustrate further the good inclination of those in high places after the revolution to do all justice to those who had suffered during the persecution it is worthy of remark that her then only surviving child Barbara footnote Lady Caldwell's eldest daughter Jean who had married Colonel John Erskine of Carnock died without issue a few years after the revolution perhaps in 1695 on the 8th of January 1696 by decree of the commissary court of Edinburgh Barbara Muir her sister was discerned nearest of kin to her register of confirmed testimony 24th of July 1696 end footnote the only surviving child, Barbara, who had married John Fairley of that ilk, having as heiress and executrix to her father and Lady Caldwell herself having for her life rent, right and interest, pursued Sir, John, Sir, Sir Thomas Dalziel of Binns, grandchild to the donator, before the Lord's accession for payment of the rents of the estate of Caldwell, intromitted with by the said donator or his gratuitous assignees, during the forfeiture, the Lords of Session, on the 5th of December, 1705, found Sir Thomas liable not only for his predecessor's bygone actual intromissions, but for the whole rental of the estate from the time his grandfather entered into the possession, and even for omissions. Some of the judges thought the restitution of bygones very hard, but the answer was, Durum est sed ita lex scripta est footnote that is it may be hard but such is the law morrison's dictionary of decisions pages 4694 and 4750 the case having however been carried by sir thomas dalziel to the scottish parliament the decision of the court of session was altered on the 20th of february 1707 and sir thomas relieved from his liability for the bygone rents of the estate of caldwell preceding the term of martinmas 1688 on account of certain specialities in his case distinguishing it from other cases falling under the act recissory footnote acts of the parliament of scotland march 20th 1707 End footnote. From the references made in these proceedings to the subject of this notice, it is evident that she was then alive, but how long she survived we have not been able to ascertain. Lady Colville Lady Colville, whose maiden name was Margaret Wemyss, was the daughter of David Wemyss of Fingask and wife of Robert Lord Colville, who succeeded his uncle of the same name in 1662 as second Lord Colville of Ochiltree. In 1671 she became a widow, his lordship having died at Cleish on the 12th of February that year. She had issue to him a son, Robert, who succeeded his father as third Lord Colville of Ochiltree, and two daughters, one, the Honorable Margaret Colville, who was married in 1701 to Sir John Ayton, of Aiton in Fife, being his second wife, and two, the Honorable Colville, who was re- who was married to the Reverend Mr. Logan, Minister of Tory. Footnote: Douglas's Peerage, Volume One, Page Three Hundred Sixty One. End footnote. The severity with which Lady Colville was treated by the government may be regarded as an involuntary testimony to the fi- to the fidelity and steadfastness which which she adhered to the persecuted cause of presbytery. She was classed among that 
quote, desperate and implacable party who keep seditious and numerous field conventicles, and that in open contempt of our authority, as if it were to brave us and those that are in places of trust under us, end quote. Footnote, Woodrow's History, Volume 2, page 238. Other marks of the government's displeasure were fixed upon her, all which in fact were so many badges of honorable distinction. She became early conspicuous as a frequenter of field conventicles, and her name appears among the ladies against whom the government first proceeded on that account an honor for which she was no doubt indebted to Archbishop Sharp, who, as he resided in Fife, was particularly zealous in his endeavors to arrest and put down the progress of so-called fanaticism within his own borders, and who had a great abhorrence of fanatic ladies. About the close of the year 1672, and in the years of 1673 and 1674, Meetings in the open fields were frequently held in Kinrosshire, where Lady Colville resided, and she was in the habit of attending these meetings, as well as of hospitably entertaining in her house the ministers who preached at them, among whom were Mr. John Welsh, Mr. Samuel Arnott, Mr. Gabriel Semple, Mr. Thomas Hogg, minister at Larbert, and many others. Footnote. Account of the Sufferings of the Covenanters in Kinrosshire, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio Number 143. End footnote. The zeal and liberality with which she countenanced the preaching of the gospel at field conventicles and befriended the persecuted ministers coming to the ears of the government, the storm of persecution began to gather around her. The more immediate cause of this was the following circumstance. A party of soldiers had been sent to disperse a field conventicle held in the Le Mans of Fife. They met with no resistance from the people, but Sharp, to excite the council to greater violence, falsely alleged that the people had made resistance. This fabricated story being communicated to the court, a letter came from the king to the council, dated June 23, 1674, requiring the council to bring the ringleaders of that disorder to punishment and promising to send for their assistance some forces from England and Ireland. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 238. End footnote. This letter occasioned a bitter persecution against all in Fife, both men and women who attended conventicles. A long catalogue of names, including several ladies as well as gentlemen, and a number of the common people was sent over to the agents of the government in Fife. Who were, re- who were required to summon them to appear before the Privy Council at Edinburgh. Footnote. Rowe's Life of Robert Blair, page 545. End footnote. Lady Colville's name was in this list, and she with several other ladies and gentlemen were summoned to appear before the Lords of the Privy Council on the 9th of July. The charges for which they were summoned to answer were their keeping and being present at house and field conventicles at Dunfermline, Cleish, Orville, and other places. Their inviting and countenancing outed ministers in their invasion and intrusion upon the kirks and pulpits of Forgan, Balmerinoch, Colisey, Monsey, and Octromukti, and hearing them preach and pray therein and their harboring, resetting, and entertaining Mr. John Welsh, a declared and proclaimed traitor in their houses and elsewhere, 
Lady Colville and the others who were summoned, not being prepared to make any confessions of criminality or to promise to abstain from, any, from attending conventicles in the future, deemed it prudent to disobey the summons, probably dreading imprisonment had they made their appearance. For this contempt of authority they were upon the 15th and 16th of July that same year denounced His Majesty's rebels and put to the horn at the market crosses of Kupar and Forfar by virtue of letters of denunciation raised and executed at the instance of His Majesty's advocate. Footnote Madro in his history, volume 2, page 242, mentions a Lady Colville who was summoned to appear before the Privy Council on the 9th of July, 1674, and who was acquitted on her comparing before the Council, in consequence of her bringing with her a testimonial in her favor from the minister of her parish, and promising not to go to any conventicles in future. But she was evidently a different person from the subject of this sketch. On consulting the register of Acts of Privy Council, we find that her maiden name was Dame Yufan Mortone. End footnote. Lady Colville was afterwards summoned to appear before a committee of the Privy Council, which was to meet at Kupar on the 15th of September. She did not come here, but was fined and ordained to pay her fine before the 1st of November. To what amount she was fined, we are not informed. Footnote. Rose Life of Robert Blair. Page 551. End footnote. Against this lady the council proceeded still further. On the 6th of August, 1675, they issued letters of intercommuning against her and upward of 100 more individuals, among whom were several other ladies of rank. Intercommuning was a very severe sentence, making as it did every man or woman who should harbor, entertain, or converse with persons intercommuned equally guilty with them. By these letters, all sheriffs, stewards, baileys of regalities, and bailiaries, and their deputies and magistrates of burghs are required to apprehend and commit to prison any persons above written, our rebels whom you shall find within your respective jurisdictions according to justice as you shall answer to us thereupon. Footnote. Wardrobe's History, Volume 2, pages 286 to 288. Mr. John Carstairs, in a letter to Mr. Robert McWard, then in Rotterdam, dated August 6, 1675, says, quote, This day the letters of intercommuning were passed. If we were in any tolerable frame for such a mercy as, alas, we are not, I would take this furious driving as a token for good and some presage that their time would be but short. End quote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 36. End footnote. The letters were proclaimed in Cupar in the beginning of October 1675. Footnote. Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 562. End footnote. Perhaps, says Wadrow, quote, it was every way without a parallel that so many ladies and gentlewomen married should be put in such circumstances. But this was to strike the greater terror on their husbands and other gentlewomen. End quote. Kirkton, in narrating this case, says, quote, but though the council assisted in their persecutions upon denunciation and intercommuning, so did not our officers and soldiers who rested not but upon imprisoning, robbing, wounding, killing the poor fanatics, 
and conventiclers where they might find them, and truly many of our soldiers made persecution not so much a duty of their office as an employment of gain. End quote. Footnote. Kirpton's History, page 363 and 364. End footnote. The concluding part of this extract is perfectly correct, but Kirpton is mistaken when he says that the council, quote, assisted in their persecution upon denunciation and intercommunion, end quote. So far was this from being the case that in a very severe proclamation against conventicles and other disorders issued by the council on the 1st of March, 1676, the magistrates of the several burghs are required to seize upon any persons who were or should in future be intercommuned. All noblemen, gentlemen, magistrates, and all other subjects are forbidden to intercommune with, harbor, or relieve any of the persons who were or should hereafter be intercommuned under the pains due to intercommuners by law. And a reward of 500 merks is now offered to such as should discover any person guilty of intercommuning with, harboring, or relieving any of the intercommuned. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 319. End footnote. On the 27th of April that same year, in prosecution of the same object, the following letter signed by the Duke of Ross in name of the council was sent to the sheriffs of the several shires. Quote, Right Honorable, the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council at their last meeting did order that the enclosed letters of intercommuning should be transmitted to you, that you may with all possible diligence, cause search for, apprehend, and imprison such of the said persons as are or shall happen to come within the bounds of your shire, and have ordered that against the twenty-second day of next June you report a particular account of your diligence to the council. This, council, this the council has appointed to be signified to you by your humble servant, Ross Cancel, IPD. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. It is, however, true, as Kirkton observes, that at this time, quote, intercommuning was not so stretched and improving as after Rothwell Bridge, Bothwell Bridge, when converse with a few rebels made almost all Scotland as guilty as if they had been in arms against the king at Bothwell Bridge. End quote. Kirkton's History, page 363. End footnote. Lady Colville, like her friends against whom these letters of intercommuning were issued, lay under this sentence till the King's Proclamation dated Whitehall, June 29, 1679, by which all letters of intercommuning were suspended, a measure which, quote, relieved multitudes who were fugitives and intercommuned and upon their hiding for many years, end quote. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, pages 149 and 151. End footnote. But while lying under this sentence, her zeal was in no wise abated. She still continued to attend conventicles and to entertain in her house the non-conforming ministers who came to preach in that part of the country where she lived. In the year 1677, when no public meetings were held in Kinrosshire for divine worship, except during the night because of the fury of the troopers who lay more than a year and a half in Kinross, Meetings for sermon were sometimes held in her house, and her character and principles being well known, she had her own share of the annoyances and severities inflicted by the troopers who perambulated the country to put down house and field conventicles. From Captain William Carstairs, 
footnote. Carstairs was a, quote, wretch who earned a living in Scotland by going disguised to conventicles and then informing against the preachers, end quote. Macaulay's History of England, Volume 1, page 237. It was believed that at the time, when the supposed popish plot in England in 1680 excited so great alarm, this infamous man to get money lent his aid by false testimony to the execution of several guiltless persons. Quote, his end, end quote, says Macaulay, quoting from Bishop Burnett, quote, was all horror and despair, and with his last breath he had told his attendants to throw him into the ditch like a dog, for that he was not fit to sleep in a Christian burial ground. In Macaulay's History of England, Volume 1, page 482. End footnote. From Captain William Carstairs in particular, she suffered no small degree of molestation and hardship. This man, who had no commission from the king, but who had been sent out by Archbishop Sharp, under pretense of searching for denounced and intercommuned persons, was at that time extremely active against the nonconformists in the east of Fife, on whom, with a party of about a dozen soldiers, he committed many cruelties. Receiving information of a conventicle which had been kept in Lady Colville's house at Clyche on a Sabbath day in the month of November, at which a preacher named Mr. Robert Anderson officiated, and learning that Mr. Anderson was lodged in her house, he came with his party to the house of Clyche early on the Monday morning, in order to make sure of apprehending his intended prisoners. So early, indeed, as about two or three hours before day, and rapping at the gate of the house, surprised and alarmed all the inmates. Having made their way into the house, they apprehended Mr. Anderson and Mr. Sethram, the chamberlain, and, quote, broke Robert Steedman's head, who made his escape, and when the captain missed him, he fell into a fit of the convulsion and continued two or three hours in it. End quote. This proved a very fortunate circumstance for Lady Colville and her son, Lord Colville, who was then a child, for during the time that Carstairs lay in the fit, they made their escape. On recovering, he carried Mr. Anderson and the Chamberlain to the toll booth of Falkland. Footnote. Kirkton says... Quote, William Sethram, he laid in prison, but the doors were opened and he set free. End quote. History, page 380. End footnote. To escape the fury of this miscreant, whose severities toward others and whose visits to her own house gave her but too just ground for apprehension, Lady Colville was obliged to remain for some time from her house, and like hundreds more of the covenanters who were hunted like moorfowl or wild beasts to hide herself in the mountains and fields by which her health was greatly impaired. Footnote. Account of the sufferings of the covenanters in Kinrushshire, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio Number 143. End footnote. As might be expected of so zealous a covenanter, Lady Colville preferred having in her family servants whose sentiments in religious matters corresponded with her own. Nor in this preference could she be charged with illiberality when it is considered that in such trying and dangerous times there was no inconsiderable risk that servants of opposite principles might, from their hatred of nonconformity or from their love of filthy lucre, have become spies in the family and betrayed their mistress or have involved her in trouble. So 
So early as 1670, before the death of her husband, some of her servants were prosecuted for attending a field conventicle. Margaret Morton, her gentlewoman, and Elizabeth Young, her servant maid, having been present at the field meeting held upon Beef Hill in the west of Fife on the 18th of June, 1670, which created much noise and greatly exasperated the government, were, along with many others in the Shire of Kinross, immediately summoned to appear before the Privy Council, and making their appearance, they, with the rest who appeared, were thrown into prison where they were kept for a long time. Footnote Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio Number 143, Rose Life of Robert Blair, pages 536-538. to End footnote. Thirteen or fourteen years later, several of her servants, among whom was Margaret Morton, a highly valued domestic, judging from the lengthened period during which she had served her ladyship, were again punished for their Presbyterian principles. From a note of a, de- of a decreet dated December 26, 1683, and July 15, 1684, recorded in the Sheriff Court Books of Fife, at the instance of Mr. John Malcolm, procurator fiscal, against several persons were for withdrawing from the church, keeping house and field conventicles, etc., we learn that Margaret Morton, gentlewoman to Lady Colville, William Morton and William Young, servants to the said lady, all in the parish of Cleish, were fined each in the sum of 300 pounds Scots and were reported to have fled. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 33, Folio Number 144. End footnote. To give her son a sound religious education was a special part of Lady Colville's care. Besides instructing him in the common doctrines and precepts of Christianity, it was her endeavor to train him up in the principles of presbytery and of the covenant, which in her judgment were founded on the word of God and connected with the honor of her Lord and Savior. But the comfort and happiness of employing her widowhood in this laudable and delightful task she was not permitted to enjoy. In violation of the laws of nature and society as well as of the law of God, the Privy Council resolved to take her son from her and place him under guardians and teachers who would instill into him such principles as would meet the approbation of the government. From the strength of the opposition which persecutors have often encountered in prosecuting their scheme for destroying the church, it has often suggested itself to them that one of the most important means of gaining their object is to prevent the young from being instructed in the persecuted principles. Julian the apostate, the more effectually to suppress and destroy Christianity, shut up the schools and colleges of the Christians, authorizing only pagans as the teachers of youth, in the confidence that the tender minds of the rising generation would receive at one and the same time the impressions of literature and idolatry. A similar policy was adopted by the rulers of France, who, on the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, commanded the Huguenots that those henceforward born of them should be baptized in the Roman Catholic religion and be placed under instructors who were the enemies of their faith, to be educated in the superstition which they abhorred. The same cruel and tyrannical system was adopted against the Presbyterians of Scotland to poison the springs and fountains of learning. It was ordained by Parliament so early as 1662 that none should be principal masters, regents, or other professors in universities or colleges unless they owned the government of the church by archbishops and bishops, as then established by the law, 
and that none should teach any public school or be pedagogues to the children of persons of quality without the license of the bishop of the diocese. Footnote. Wadrill's History, Volume 1, page 267. Presbyterian teachers sometimes attempted to form schools for the education of the young, but they did so at the risk of being imprisoned and otherwise punished, there being always individuals who, from various motives, were sure to inform the government against them. The following quotation from Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, page 294, is a specimen of what frequently happened in cases of this nature. Quote, 2nd June, 1681. The private schoolmaster in Edinburgh being called before the Privy Council and complained on by the master of the High Grammar School, one school is far from being able to serve Edinburgh now, there are Mr. Strang, Mr. William Greenlaw, and two or three others of them in prison till they find caution not to teach Latin till they be licensed by the bishop. For several of them were outed ministers and others who were suspected to poison the young ones with disloyal principles, so that the regents of the colleges defended themselves that many of their young were infected and leavened ere they came to them, and even when they are licensed not to teach the grammar but only the rudiments and vocables. For then the children may come to that strength as to go on to the high school. End quote. End footnote. But the detestable, but detestable as was the tyranny of these enactments, the government went even still further. The children of Presbyterians of quality were taken from their parents and placed in the hands of such as would educate them in principles which they repudiated as contrary to the word of God and to the solemn obligations under which the nation had been brought. On learning the intention of the government to take her son from her and place him under prelatic teachers, Lady Colville determined, as was natural enough, to keep her son, if possible, from falling into their hands, and with this view she removed him out of the way. By this the indignation of the government being excited, they immediately instituted proceedings against her. In the first place they find her in her absence in the sum of five thousand merks Scots. Footnote, that is, 277 pounds, six shillings, six pence. Sterling, end footnote. And failing to pay this sum, she was apprehended and imprisoned in the toll booth of Edinburgh. Lord Fountainhall gives the following account of the cause of her imprisonment. Quote, December 2, 1684. The Lady Colville is imprisoned in Edinburgh toll booth by the Privy Council for her irregularities and particularly for breeding up her son, the Lord Colville, in fanaticism and other disloyal principles and abstracting and putting him out of the way when the council was going to commit his education to others, for which we have acts of parliament as to the children of papists which may be extended a paritati to others. End quote. Footnote. Fountain Hill's Decisions of the Lord's Session, Volume 1, page 316. End footnote. The reader is to observe that this writer was an enemy to the Presbyterians, whom, though he was more moderate than most of his kind in his day, he regarded as fanatics, and that his account of this lady is tinged with his party prejudices. His exaggerated and colored statement, when translated into the simple language of truth, is that she was imprisoned for withdrawing from her parish church 
attending house and field conventicles, and particularly for training up her son, Lord Kilt Colville, in the principles of Presbytery and of the Covenant. The cell into which this lady was cast was one of the worst in the prison. It was a narrow, dark room where she, requi- she, where she required to burn candles during the whole day, and where she was without fire, though it was in the depth of winter. Quote, it might be thought, unquote, says a manuscript account of the sufferings of that period, quote, that persons of quality and honor were not concerned in these sufferings. But the contrary is evident, as, besides other instances, in the case of my lady Colville, who, being fined in absence, at last was made prisoner in the toll booth of Edinburgh in a little room where she could not get the use of fire in the benefit of the light of day, and that for some that for some months in the winter season. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 40, Folio Number 6. End footnote. And in another manuscript of the same period, entitled Grievances from Scotland, 1661 to 1688, the following is specified as a grievance. Quote, My Lady Colville was put in the toll booth of Edinburgh in a straight, dark, fireless room, where all day long she behooved to keep candles burning, and was thus kept for a long time because she would not deliver up her son, my Lord Colville. Their quarrel with her was not countenancing the profane clergy. End quote. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 40, Folio Number 3. End footnote. After lying for some weeks in this narrow, cold, and gloomy cell, than which a worse was not appropriated to robbers and murderers, Lady Colville, from the privations and hardships she endured, was induced to petition the Privy Council that she might be removed to a more convenient room in the prison, and the Council, at their meeting on the 24th of December, 1684, quote, having considered her petition, gave order and warrant to the magistrates of Edinburgh and keepers of the toll booth thereof, to accommodate her with a more convenient room than that which she is now in, and to detain her prisoner therein till further order. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. In consequence of this order, she appears to have been removed to a more convenient room in the prison, but in those days the best of the Scottish prisons were cheerless and unwholesome dungeons, and her health soon began to be affected. By the harsh treatment to which she had been formerly subjected, and being driven to the mountains to shelter herself from a ruthless soldiery, her constitution had been greatly shaken, and it did not now possess vigor enough for the endurance of a rigorous and tedious imprisonment. After she had been shut up for nearly three months, her bodily indisposition became so great that her life was in danger. In these circumstances, she presented a petition to the Privy Council, which was supported by the testimonial of a physician praying that she might enjoy a temporary release for the recovery of her health but containing no admission of the justice of her imprisonment nor any engagement that in matters of religion she would in future live and act as the government were pleased to dictate. In answer to this petition, the council at their meeting on the 17th of March quote, gave order and warrant to the magistrate of Edinburgh to set her at liberty upon her finding sufficient caution under the penalty of the fine for which she is incarcerated, 
and to confine herself to a chamber in Edinburgh and to re-enter the said prison upon the 2nd of April next. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. At the time when Lady Colville was apprehended and imprisoned in the tollbooth of Edinburgh, her son, Lord Colville, was attending the College of Edinburgh. On learning what had befallen his mother and hearing further that orders had been given to apprehend and imprison him also, the youth, in great consternation, fled from the city. Nor does it appear that he returned again to the college that session. To his mother this was a source of great uneasiness and she was extremely anxious that he should be brought back to the college to prosecute his studies. This appears from a petition which she presented to the council when the day appointed for her re-entering prison arrived, at which time she was still very much unwell. After stating that the council had been pleased to grant her temporary liberty in order to use means for the recovery of her health, but that her physicians had declared that it was impossible for them to enter on a course of medicinal treatment with a view to her recovery in so short a time, she goes on to say that what troubled her more, though she was brought very low by sickness, was that by her surprising imprisonment, her son did run away, hearing that a party was ordered to apprehend him likewise, and that now... Should she again enter prison, neither she herself nor her friends would be able to prevail upon him to return to the college to his studies, because he apprehended that so long as the council inclined to keep her a prisoner, they would likewise keep him a prisoner. She engages that should the council allow her any competent time, she would, upon the word and honor of a gentlewoman, take pains and concur with his friends to the utmost of her ability to bring him back to the college." and after he is once settled there, she expresses her willingness to be disposed of as the council should think fit, and in the meantime offers to give sufficient security that she would present herself before the council when called. On these grounds, she humbly supplicates that the council would be pleased to allow her some competent time for the purpose specified, the state of her health being such that she would require to be carried to prison on a bed and she being fully resolved to employ the time which the council should allow her in bringing back and settling her son. Having considered this petition at their meeting on the 3rd of April, the council, quote, continue the petitioner's liberty forth of the prison until this day seven night upon the terms and caution as formerly, end quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. On the 14th of March, 1685, the Council, quote, gave order for setting at liberty any women prisoners for receipt or harboring of rebels, or on account of their wicked principles upon their swearing the abjuration of the late traitorous paper. Footnote. This was an oath abjuring a paper emitted by the society people entitled, quote, The Apologetic Declaration and Admonitory Vindication of the True Presbyterians of the Church of Scotland, especially on intelligencers and informers. End footnote. And likewise giving their oaths that they shall not hereafter reset, harbor, or keep intelligence with rebels and fugitives. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. But this act was intended to apply exclusively to such imprisoned women as belonged to the society people or Cameronians, and as Lady Colville did not belong to that party, this act brought her no relief. There is, however, another consideration, the cupidity of the government, 
which accounts for the greater leniency shown toward these Cameronian women than toward this lady. Wherever these rapacious rulers found wealthy Presbyterians, their watchword, like that of one of Shakespeare's characters, was, quote, down with them, fleece them, end quote, and getting them once within their grasp, they did not quit their hold till they had stripped them of all or much that they possessed. These Cameronian women being without exception poor, no money could be extracted from them, but Lady Colville being a richer prey, the government had an eye upon her fine, and to squeeze from her the five thousand mercs, continued relentlessly to harass her. At their meeting on the 16th of April, the Lords of His Majesty's Privy Council, quote, grant warrant to His Majesty's Advocate to raise a protest before the Council against the Lord Colville and his mother for disorders, end quote. And at the same meeting, they, quote, grant warrant to the clerks of the Council to receive caution from the Lady Colville for her re-entering prison within the toll booth of Edinburgh when called under the penalty of 5,000 mercs. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. She appears to have given bond for her appearance before the council on the 21st of April, and the council at their meeting on that day continue her liberty upon her, again finding security under the penalty contained in her former bond to come appear before His Majesty's High Commissioner upon the last Thursday of that month. Whether she appeared before the High Commissioner on the day appointed, it is not said, but if she did, she does not appear to have given him the satisfaction which he required. For the Council at their meeting of the 30th of April, quote, gave order to Patrick Graham, captain of the town of Edinburgh's company, to apprehend her and to see her re-entered prison within the toll booth of Edinburgh. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. End footnote. This is the last notice of Lady Colville which we meet with in the records of the Privy Council. Whether the order was executed or if it was, how long she continued to be in prison, we are not able to ascertain. In reviewing these notices of Lady Colville's history, it is pleasing and interesting to find that severe as was the treatment which she experienced, it had no effect in inducing her to make any unworthy compliance in order to be set at liberty or in order to obtain a relaxation of the severity of her imprisonment. She repeatedly petitioned the Privy Council on one occasion for a better room, on another for a temporary release on account of her bodily indisposition, on another for a further prorogation of the term of her liberty, but these favors she never asked on dishonorable terms. Rather than do this, she was prepared to suffer the slow and lingering torture of a prison, a proof how well established the principles of her faith were, and that she possessed no small degree of Christian resolution. This is the more worthy of commendation when the weak and sickly state of body to which she was reduced is concerned. For whatever were her sufferings at the hands of men, the reflection that these were endured in the cause of Christ, that it was for her steadfast adherence to him that she was denounced a rebel, intercommuned, maligned as a fanatic, fined and thrown into a dark and unwholesome prison, would yield her true satisfaction. She was honored to suffer for Christ, and under whatever pretext she was persecuted, she was doubtless in the sight of him who judgeth righteous judgment, found entitled to that benediction of the Savior, quote, 
Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Unquote. Catherine Rigg, Lady Cavers. Catherine Rigg was the eldest daughter of Thomas Rigg of Atherney by his wife Margaret Moneypenny, daughter of Mr. Moneypenny of Pitmilly, Esquire. Footnote. Lamont's Diary, page 115, compared with Douglas's Baronage of Scotland, page 223. End footnote. Her ancestors on the father's side were distinguished for their ardent zeal and active labors in promoting both the First Reformation from Popery and the Second Reformation from Prelacy. Her paternal great-grandmother, Catherine Rowe, who was the eldest daughter of the celebrated Dr. John Rowe, Minister of Perth, and the able co-adjutor of our illustrious reformer, John Knox, is described by Mr. William Rowe, Minister of Sears, in speaking of the year 1587 when she could not have been more than between 20 and 30 years of age as, quote, one of the most religious and wise matrons then in Edinburgh, end quote. Her paternal great-grandfather, William Rigg, the husband of the lady now mentioned, was a wealthy merchant burgess in Edinburgh and a warm supporter of the Reformation, as well as a man of much moral and religious worth. Footnote. Rose History of the Kirk of Scotland, pages 457, 469, and 472. End footnote. Her paternal grandfather, William Rigg, the son of the preceding, and who, like his father, was a merchant in Edinburgh, was a man of eminent piety, uncommon benevolence, and great public spirit. He is said to have spent yearly not less than eight or nine thousand merks, about three hundred and fifty pounds sterling, for pious purposes. Footnote. He inherited considerable property from his father, to whom he was re- retoured heir, August 16, 1619, in various lands in Fife, Roth, and Cromarty, and in a tenement of land in the Burg of Elgin. He was also very successful in business. End footnote. For his opposition to the introduction of the Perth Articles by James VI, he was fined fifty thousand pounds Scots and ordered to be imprisoned in the castle of Blackness till the fine was paid. He also took an active part in the proceedings of the Covenanters against the court in the reign of Charles I. He was at one time one of the Baileys of Edinburgh, in which capacity Mr. John Livingstone says, quote, he gave great evidence that he had the spirit of a magistrate beyond many, being a terror to all evildoers. End quote. Having purchased the estate of Atherney in Fife, he is often called in the annals of that period William Rigg of Atherney. He died on the 2nd of January, 1644. The father of the subject of this notice, Thomas Rigg, was the eldest son or the eldest surviving son of the preceding, as appears from his having been served heir to him in his extensive heritable property. Footnote. Thomas Rigg was retoured heir to his father April 18, 1644, in various tenements in Edinburgh, in the lands of Manuel Rigg, Bowhouses, and Cromar Land, or Manuel Foolis in Stirlingshire, in lands in Ross, Cromarty, and Fife, and in a tenement within the burgh of Elgin, 
End footnote. Of her father's life we know much less than of her grandfather's, nor have we discovered the exact date of his death, but it must have been previous to the year 1659, as her mother appears in that year as the wife of the celebrated Sir John Scott of Scott's Tarvet, who had been twice married before and who died in 1670 in the 84th year of his age. Footnote. Lamont's Diary, page 115. Crawford, in his genealogical collections, gives the following particulars respecting the family of Rigg of Atherney. Quote, William Rigg, Bailey of Atherney, a very good religious man and an excessive rich merchant, purchased the estate of Atherney in Fife and other lands. He had a son by his wife, a Beatson of the house of Bath, Harold's office, and Janet, a daughter who was married to Sir Walter Riddell of that ilk, and had issues Sir John and Mr. Archibald. Another daughter married to Mr. John Skeen of Halyards had issue, etc. Second, Thomas Rigg of Atherney married Margaret Moneypenny, daughter of Mr. Moneypenny of Pitmilly by Merton, his wife, daughter of Mr. Merton of Campbell and had a son, William, and two daughters, Dame Catherine Rigg, who was married to Sir William Douglas of Cavers, and Margaret Rigg, her sister, who was married to George Scott of Pitlocky, son to Sir John Scott of Scott's Tarvet. Both had issue. His lady, Pitmilly's daughter, was the third wife of Sir John Scott of Scott's Tarvet, and had a son, Walter Scott, to whom he gave Eden's head, whose daughter and heir was married to Mr. Charles Erskine, brother to the Earl of Buchan. End quote. Manuscript folio in Advocates Library. William Rigg of Atherney, the brother of Lady Cavers, had by his wife a son, William, and a daughter, Euphan, who, with their mother, both died at sea in going out to East New Jersey in America, with Mr. George Scott of Pitlocky in 1685. In that disastrous voyage, about seventy died by a malignant fever which broke out in the vessel, and the names of Lady Atherney, her daughter Euphan, and her son William appear on a list of those who thus perished. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 36, Numbers 65 and 66, and Volume 33, Folio Number 117. In the Commissary Records of Edinburgh, 24th November, 1693, there is registered the Quote, the testament, dative, and inventar of the debts pertaining to Umquil, William, and Euphan Rigg, lawful children to the deceased William Rigg of Atherney, sometime residenters in Edinburgh, who deceased at sea in a voyage to East Jersey in the month of, in 1685, years, faithfully made and given up by William and Sarah Rigg, lawful children to the deceased Mr. Walter Rigg at Athel Stanford, and Patrick Hepburn, writer in Edinburgh, husband to the said Sarah, for his interest. Walter Alexander and Catherine Rigg, lawful children to the deceased James Rigg, merchant Burgess of Edinburgh. Only executors, datives, discerned as nearest of kin to the said defuncts by decree of the Commissars of Edinburgh as the same of the date of the 3rd of May, 1693, in itself at more length bears. End quote. Lady Caver's sister, the wife of Mr. George Scott of Pitlocky, also died by the fever on the same voyage. End footnote.
Of the early life of this lady, no particulars have been preserved. In March 1659, she was married to Sir William Douglas of Cavers, younger. The circumstances in which their courtship and marriage originated are thus recorded by Crawford in his genealogical collections. Quote, I have heard that Sir William Douglas of Cavers applied to Sir John Scott of Scott Starvet to have borrowed from him the sum of 50,000 marks that he wanted to pay off some of his pressing debts. Sir John told him that he could not do it himself at present, but there was a young gentlewoman at his house who had just as much portion in ready money as he wanted to borrow, and he did not know but both the lady and her portion might be at his service. From this hint, Sir William made his application and addresses to Miss Catherine Rigg and obtained the lady in marriage soon after that. End quote. Footnote. Manuscript folio in Advocates Library. End footnote. Crawford adds, quote, A mighty religious good woman she was, as any could be in her time. End quote. Both Lady Cavers and Sir William, who was a man of principle, adhered to the cause of the ministers ejected in 1662. Footnote. The minister of Cavers, Mr. James Gillen, was among the number of the ejected ministers. He died in 1688. The circumstances connected with his death are thus recorded by Kirkton. Quote, Another act of cruelty they, the government, committed at this time, at the time when James Mitchell attempted the assassination of Archbishop Sharp, was, upon pretense of searching for the bishop's assassin, they seized Mr. James Gillen, late minister at Cavers, and made him run on foot from Curry, whither he had retired for whither he had retired for his health, to the west port of Edinburgh at midnight, and then he was carried to prison. And when the council found the mistake, they did indeed suffer him to go to his chamber. But his cruel usage disordered him so that within two days he died. End quote. History of the Church of Scotland, page 284. End footnote. By which they excited the resentment of the government. For refusing to take the declaration which abjured the National Covenant, Sir William was removed from his office of Sheriff of Teviotdale, in which he stood infested. He and his wife also suffered when, on their children having so far advanced in years as to require a tutor, they selected one from among the students or preachers of the nonconformists. To entrust the education of youth in schools, in colleges, and in families of rank exclusively to such as conform to prelacy, formed from the beginning, as we have seen before, a leading part of the scheme of the government for establishing prelacy, and to enforce the laws enacted in reference to this matter, a proclamation was issued by the Privy Council on the 1st of March, 1676, forbidding all persons in future to entertain any schoolmaster, pedagogue, or chaplain for performance of family worship who had not licensed to do that effect under the hands of the respective bishops of their diocese, under the penalty of 3,000 merks to be extracted for each nobleman, and 1,200 merks for each gentleman, and 600 merks for a burgess or any other subject, for each such offense as they should be found guilty in the premises. But the family of Cavers, having in disregard of this proclamation, kept with them Mr. James Osborne, 
a Presbyterian student or preacher, as tutor to their children, letters were raised at the instance of Sir John Nisbet, His Majesty's advocate, charging Sir William with having, quote, ever since the date of the said proclamation, and contrary to the duty and loyal incumbent upon, and required of good subjects, entertained, reset, and countenanced Mr. James Osborne as a school schoolmaster or pedagogue, or as his chaplain, at the least for perform, performance of family worship, albeit he be a person not licensed nor authorized under the hand of the bishop of the diocese to that effect, whereby the said Sir William Douglas of Cavers hath directly contravened the tenor of the said Act of Parliament and the said proclamation, and thereby not only incurred the pains and penalties therein contained, but ought to exhibit and produce to His Majesty's Privy Council the person of the said Mr. James Osborne. End quote. By these letters he was charged to compare personally before the Privy Council on the 3rd of August, 1676, to answer to the foresaid complaint, and to hear and see such order taken thereanent as appertained under pain of rebellion, etc., Sir William not having appeared at the bar of the council in obedience to the summons, the council, quote, ordained letters to be directed to messengers at arms to denounce him, his majesty's rebel, and to put him to the horn and to escheat, etc., superseding extract hereof as to the said Sir William Douglas until the first council day in September next. End quote. Footnote. Register of Acts of Privy Council. Mr. James Osborne is included in the letters raised against Sir William Douglas, the charge against him being that he had most unwarrantably presumed and taken upon hand to serve Sir William as a schoolmaster, pedagogue, or chaplain for family worship, although he was not licensed or authorized to that effect according to law. And failing to appear before the council on the 3rd of August, he was declared His Majesty's rebel, but nothing is said respecting superseding extract hereof as to him. End footnote. After this, Sir William had not long to live. The precise date of his death we have not ascertained, but it took place previous to the year 1680. It is in the beginning of that year that Lady Cavers appears upon the stage as personally obnoxious to the government on account of her nonconformity. Being now left a widow with numerous children, she felt that to educate them in the principles of religion and of the Reformed Church of Scotland was one of the most important duties of her life, or rather the most important duty which devolved upon her as a widowed mother. This appears from the proceedings instituted against her, which we are now about to narrate, and from which it will be seen how anxious the government and its supporters were to prevent the education of children, and especially those of rank in Presbyterian principles. It appears that Thomas Douglas, brother to her deceased husband, Sir William Elliot of Stobes, Mr. Archibald Douglas, minister at Seaton, or possibly Salton, and Mr. Richard Douglas, advocate, had been nominated and appointed tutors to William, her eldest son, who succeeded his father, and to Archibald and John, his brothers, conformed to a gift of tutory granted to that effect to which office they were preferred by His Majesty's exchequer upon express and full consideration that the complainers would be careful and not only of the said minors' persons as being their nearest relations, but of their education as peaceable, loyal, and good subjects. 
and which was thought to be of considerable consequence to his majesty's service, that family having a great interest in the shire of Roxburgh where they live, and considering that Dame Catherine Rigg, Lady Cavers, their mother, would take pains to withdraw them from these good principles. End quote. Lady Caver's eldest son, William, was accordingly taken from her and educated for several years at school in Dalkeith and Edinburgh. But William, having for the benefit of his health been permitted to stay at his own house with his mother for some time, she refused to allow him to return to the schools where he had been formerly bred. At the same time, she refused to deliver up to the tutors her other two sons, Archibald and John, who were still within the years of pupillarity, not, of course, because she was hostile to their receiving a complete education and every accomplishment suitable to their station, but because she wished their education to be conducted under her own eye. And so long as they were with her, she did not fail to instill into their minds the principles of Presbytery and of the Covenant. This gave great offense to the tutors, and letters were raised against her at their instance to compel her to deliver up to them her children. They complain that, quote, she willfully keeps them that she may give them those disloyal impressions which may prove very dangerous to that family, breeding them up in a perfect aversion to the government of church and state, and who are already arrived at that, world, at that wildness, that they will neither frequent the public ordinances themselves, nor converse with those who do so. And therefore, unquote, they add, Quote, in all equity and justice, the said Lady Caver should not only be discerned to deliver up to the complainers the persons of the said William, Archibald, and John Douglas, the complainers' pupils, that they may take care for their education and be discharged to withdraw or detain them from schools and their other education, but also punish to the terror of others to do the like in time coming. End quote. She was charged to come here personally before the Privy Council on the 27th of January, 1680, to answer to the premises and to bring with her, exhibit, and produce the persons of her three sons above named, and to hear and see herself discerned to deliver them up to their tutors, or else to show a reasonable cause to the contrary, and further to hear and see such other order taken in the foresaid matter as shall appertain under the pain of rebellion. In obedience to the summons, she compared personally before the council to defend herself. After having heard and considered the libel and the answers made thereto, the lords of the council discerned and ordained her to deliver to the pursuers the persons of the said William Archibald and John Douglas, their pupils, and to do so within the course of eight days to be educated as they should order, and if need be, ordained letters of horning upon a charge of six days to be directed for that effect. Footnote, Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. Nearly two and a half years after this, Lady Cavers was brought to still greater trouble on account of her Presbyterian principles. From what has been already stated, it is evident that she had embraced the cause for which the ejected ministers suffered with too warm a zeal to attend the curates. But this was not the only thing which rendered her obnoxious to the persecuting rulers of the day. She had besides attended conventicles held in the part of the country where she resided, and had even permitted them to be held in her own house. 
She was, moreover, in the habit of hospitality, entertaining the proscribed ministers who happened to be in that part of the country, and she retained as her servants some whom the government had renounced, had denounced rebels. The strong sympathy and support thus given by one in her station to the cause of suffering nonconformity did not escape the notice of the evil instruments of the government in the district in which she lived. Among those who, in that district, signalized themselves as persecutors was Adam Urquhart, the Lord of Meldrum, who was made a Justice of the Peace in Roxburghshire in May 1679 to assist Henry Kerr of Graydon, Sheriff Depute of that county, in repressing and punishing such disorders as withdrawing from the parish churches and attending conventicles. Nor did these men want spies and informers to assist them in this work of oppression. In the list of those whom they oppressed on account of religion, Lady Cavers occupies a prominent place. Her conduct they observed with eager scrutiny. Her recusant delinquencies they carefully noted down and transmitted an exaggerated report of them to the lords of the Privy Council who were glad to find an occasion against her in the hope of being able to extort from her a heavy fine. While living peaceably at her own house, attending to her household and maternal duties, she was, in 1682, disturbed by the harsh intrusion of the rugged messengers of the law, with letters raised against her at the instance of Sir George Mackenzie, His Majesty's Advocate. In these letters she is charged with, quote, keeping and being present at conventicles, harboring, resetting, entertaining, intercommuning, and corresponding with declared rebels and traitors and disorderly and irregular persons, end quote. After stating that by the laws and acts of Parliament of this realm these were, quote, crimes of a high nature and severely punishable, end quote, the letters, which contain a mixture of truth and falsehood, proceed as follows, quote, Nevertheless, it is of verity that upon the first, second, third, and remnant days of the months of August, September, October, November, December of 1679, upon the first, second, third, and remnant days of the months of January, February, March, and remnant months of the year 1680 and 1681, and upon the first, second, third, and remnant days of the months of January, February, March, April, and May last, one or other of the days of the months of the said years, Dame Catherine Rigg, Lady Cavers, having been present at diverse conventicles in the shires of Roxburgh and Selkirk, and several other places where she hath heard Mr. Matthew Selkirk, a vagrant preacher, Mr. Donald Cargill and Mr. Gabriel Semple, declared traitors, Mr. Thomas Douglas, Mr. Samuel Arnott, Mr. Archibald Riddell, and Mr. James Osborne, preach, expound scripture, pray, and exercise the other functions of the ministry. Footnote. Field conventicles were frequently held in those days in the parish of Cavers. The hollow dells and rocky recesses of the hill Rubber's Law, which is situated in the lower division of the parish, were the haunts of the persecuted covenanters, and not only the place but the very stone on which the volume of God's word was laid when the celebrated Alexander Pedden declared its truths to a large congregation there assembled is still pointed out. New Statistical Account of Scotland, Parish of Cavers. End footnote. And, in the said seditious meetings, vent several malicious and wicked expressions 
against his majesty's government and particularly in the month of November 1680 the laird of Meldrum having gone to the said shire in pursuance of his majesty's commands for putting the laws in execution against disorderly persons true it is that the said lady cavers to evidence her zeal and forwardness against the putting of his majesty's laws in execution and so encouraged disorderly persons in their irregular practices did upon the first second third or one or other of the days of the said month of november sixteen eighty cause advertise and convocate diverse numbers of people at her house keeping a seditious conventicle and accordingly there did convene above the number of three hundred persons whereof some were within and some were without doors which by the law is declared to be a field conventicle at which seditious meeting the said mr matthew selkirk one or other of the foresaid persons traitors vagrants disorderly ministers did intimate a fast to be kept at the said house in november for philippa's good success against the laird of meldrum footnote the laird of meldrum one of the most active persecutors had imposed heavy fines on many gentlemen and tenants in the shire of teviotdale and committed to prison such as did not pay their fines it was calculated that he had uplifted in fines from that shire not less than ten thousand pounds this as might have been expected created great dissatisfaction james murray of philippa principal sheriff of selkirk william murray his deputy and some gentlemen and tenants brought a libel against him before the privy council in november 1680 complaining of his many oppressions and wrong wrongous imprisonments quote philippa unquote says woodrow quote proved his libel against meldrum to the conviction of all and answered what meldrum charged him with and when meldrum offered to give in some new queries he was willing to admit them providing he should be allowed to begin with new queries to him and proposed he might be interrogate whether meldrum was papist or protestant when he was last at mass who were present with him when he had conversed last with rebels and what compositions he had made with them and quote wadrow's history volume 3 page 240 decrees of privy council 21st july 1681 this is the case referred to in the text and footnote which was accordingly performed where the said mr matthew selkirk preached and at which there were present above 200 persons and many of them without doors like as the said lady cavers during the foresaid space hath constantly entertained and harbored reset and intercommuned with the foresaid traitors rebels and vagrant preachers as also thomas turnbull of stonehill john clooney barber and haywick and divers other seditious and disorderly persons and hath furnished them with meat house and harbor by herself and tenants as also robert davidson a declared rebel and fugitive as her gardener whereby the said dame catherine rigg is guilty of the manifest crimes of crimes above written and hath contravened the law and acts of parliament made there against for which she ought to be severely punished in her person and goods to the terror of others to commit and do the like in time coming and quote footnote decrees of privy council and footnote
To answer the foresaid complaint, and to hear and see such order taken thereanent as appertained, she is charged to come here personally before the council on the 4th of July, 1682, under the pain of rebellion. Her case came before the council at their meeting on the 4th of July, but she disobeyed the summons, and on her being oft-times called and not comparing, the council granted, quote, certification against her, ordaining her to be denounced His Majesty's rebel, end quote. Afterward, however, upon application to the council, she was, quote, reponed against the said certification upon her finding caution to compere before the council on the 13th day of November instant, end quote. On that day, the council having met and her case being again called, she compared with a procurator to plead in her defense. Her libel was read and answers were made to it by her procurator in the presence of the council. But not satisfied with these answers, the lords of the council ordered her to be brought before them. On her making her appearance, His Majesty's advocate, quote, referred the truth of the libel to her oath and declared that, conformably to His Majesty's letter and the constant practice of the Council, he restricted those points of the libel in their own nature criminal to an arbitrary punishment, and declared that any confession to be made by her should not be any ground of a criminal process against her. End quote. But she refused to give her oath. The ground upon which she was required to depone upon oath was the second act of the Parliament of 1670. Footnote. See this act in Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 167. End footnote. And the King's letter in 1674, just now referred to, restricted the punishment in the case of such as confessed their non-conforming delinquencies to an arbitrary fine. It was the opinion of Sir George Lockhart, an eminent lawyer of that day, delivered in a case exactly similar that the above act of Parliament, though it might compel her to depone against others, could not compel her to depone against herself. And that, quote, she behooved first to have a remission past the seals, and the king's letter was not equivalent thereto, end quote. Footnote. The case in which Sir George Lockhart delivered this opinion was that of Edmiston, of Duntraith, who, on the 30th of June, 1681, was fined in 9,000 mercs and sentenced to lie in prison till it was paid, for refusing to depone with respect to his conversing and intercommuning with a denounced fugitive minister with respect to his having been at field conventicles and with respect to his calling the proceedings of the Privy Council arbitrary and tyrannical, on all which points he was urged to depone both from the second act of the Parliament of 1670 and from the King's letter in 1674. Sir George Lockhart employed in defense of his client the argument stated in the text, but it was repelled, and Edmiston was holden as confessed for not deponing and fined. Fountain Hall's Historical Notices, Volume 1, page 301. End footnote. But the Privy Council took a different view of the matter. Upon her refusal to give her oath, quote, the Lords of Council, considering that the crimes libeled were of a very high nature, and that in construction of the law she, by reason of her refusing to depone, was understood to be guilty of the whole crimes libeled, 
did therefore fine her in the sum of nine thousand merks Scots money, and ordained her to be carried to prison until she should have made payment, or found caution to pay the same to his majesty's cash-keeper, and found caution for her future good behavior. But if her former cautioner obliged himself under the penalty of one thousand pounds sterling to produce her upon the Thursday next, the sixteenth of, of November, before the council, the lords allowed her to stay out of prison till that day. End quote. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. Having found this security, she was in the meantime set at liberty. On the 16th of November, her surety, quote, conformed to his bond, produced her at the council bar, end quote. But she having neither, quote, made payment of the fine imposed upon her last council day, nor given bond for her future good behavior, the lords of council ordained her to be committed prisoner to the toll booth of Edinburgh until Monday next and recommended to General Dalziel the said day to cause transport her from the said tollbooth of Edinburgh to the castle of Stirling by a party and appointed the governor of the said castle of Stirling or his deputy to receive, keep, and detain her person in sure ferments until further order from the council. End quote. Footnote. Decrees of Privy Council. End footnote. This order was duly executed, and she continued in prison till the close of the year 1684, with the exception of a few weeks liberty granted her for the benefit of her health. Quote, her case was indeed very hard, unquote, says Wadrow, quote, to say nothing of her shining virtue and singular piety, and her being chargeable with nothing but simple nonconformity with prelacy, and no ways concerned in anything against the government nor could once be supposed to be. End quote. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 4, page 54. End footnote. How she and her children were maintained during the period of her imprisonment, we are not informed. She had a jointure of 150 pounds sterling from the rental of the estate of her deceased husband for the support of herself and her five younger children. But of this she was deprived, the rents of her tenants being arrested for the payment of her exorbitant fine, which was more than her income from her jointure amounted to for three years. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.